As you watch this teaching, please subscribe, like, and comment so more people can see this message. Hey, home group, this is Rick Renner. Today, let's show that on the camera, because today we're answering questions, and people ask a lot of questions. And the Bible tells us that there are some things that are revealed and some things are not revealed. Okay, we have a dinosaur bone on stage, and uh, we were talking with my children recently about the timeline, and they asked, when was Adam created? And I said, well, according to the Bible and the Jewish calendar, Adam was created about 6,000 years ago. And then they said, well, what about the dinosaurs? Everybody always wants to know about the dinosaurs. I said, well... Some people believe that between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, there was a gap. And that's when the dinosaurs occurred. But they asked about the dinosaurs. Well, almost everybody asks about the dinosaurs, and we could give our opinions. But to be honest, the Bible does not clearly answer the question. And so the Bible tells us that the revealed things have been revealed, and there are some things that have not been revealed. But today we put this dinosaur bone here because we're going to be dealing with questions that people ask, but where in the world would we get a dinosaur bone? Well, this is the thigh bone of a woolly mammoth. All right, who wants to tell our home group why and where we got this? Woolly mammoths come from northern Siberia. In northern Siberia, it's constantly cold, like there's permafrost, meaning there's a certain level of the ground that's always frozen. And not just a certain level, I mean it's many, many feet frozen. Yes. And there are two ways that these dinosaur bones appear because when the ground freezes, it actually pushes things that are in the ground that aren't like, uh, wouldn't be like roots uh, of trees. It actually pushes things out of the ground. Solid objects. Solid objects. So sometimes these dinosaur bones actually get shoved by the force of the freezing and unfreezing ground. They actually get shoved out of the ground and just show up sticking out of the ground on the surface. That's the first way they show up. Often tusks show up like that. Uh, then the other way is dinosaur bone hunters. They hook up these huge water pumps to nearby rivers. And they blast the permafrost. And they melt the permafrost with these huge water hydrants <coughs> until the melted ground and dirt begins to erode away and you end up with what's whatever's under the ground. And that's how we ended up with a woolly mammoth thigh bone. And that's not all we have. We have molars, we've got jaw bones, we've got a skull, we have several tusks. We tusks. have my Bible. Hey, Denise's Bible, that is right. That's the most, this is not ivory. This is woolly mammoth tusk that is carved with a D. Imp Paul got that for me to celebrate my birthday. Anyway, everybody can't have a dinosaur bone on their set. So we decided that we would do it tonight and this week. Every night this week, we're going to have something fun on the set, different from the night before. So just wait for tomorrow night. Okay, are you guys ready? But first, I want to say that in the regular TV program this week, we're doing my brand new series, which is called The Coming of the Antichrist. Well, we all know that Jesus is coming, but after Jesus comes, the Antichrist is going to show up, and we need to know what the Bible says about that. So I've done this brand new series that I've never done before, and I've never heard anybody else do it either, and wow, it is so packed, but you can go to our website, and you can download the free study guide right now, 
Just go to our website right now, renner.org, and you can also order the full series. And Joe, you are the reader. I am the reader. All right, let's the do it. The reader is beginning. Question number one, who were the Magi? Well, the Magi are listed in Matthew chapter 2. So, do you have your Bibles? I have my Bible. Let's go to Matthew chapter 2. <coughs> and in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to worship him. Here it is translated wise men. It is actually the word magi. And when I see this and the wise men, I go back in my mind to when I was a kid, and I guess Denise does too, because there was a cantata we sang in our churches, and I can still hear my daddy practicing the song. He just loved the song. You want to sing it with me, Denise? We three kings of Orient are bearing gifts. We travel afar, fields and fountains, more and fountains, following yonder star. Oh, my daddy just loved that. And every year at Christmas, he would just sing it with all of his heart. Well, who were the wise men? Who were the magi? Magi, first of all, were not three little lonely kings that showed up. I know that's what you see on greeting cards. Three lonely kings on three solitary camels, walking through the sand dunes, coming across the desert. Now, how likely would that be for three powerful people carrying precious gifts all by themselves out in the middle of nowhere? It's totally illogical. Not only that, Magi was a caste system from Babylon, and they were kingmakers. One word of a Magi could put a person in position as king and could remove a king. They were stronger than the king themselves. And in fact, Magi were so powerful. They were a strange combination of priests, magicians, astrologers. We really don't have anything like it today. It would be like if you took the Pope and mixed the Pope with some kind of a noble position. I don't know, we just don't even have anything like it in the world today to match a Magi. Magi were so powerful that when Magi came to Rome to visit Nero, now Nero was a pretty brutal guy. It terrified Nero. It terrified him. He threw open the whole city of Rome to receive the Magi because Magi's words were so powerful they could install a king and they could depose a king. Mm -hmm. And so the idea that the Magi, three little lonely guys, showed up is just ridiculous. It is ridiculous. They would have come with caravans. It's likely that there may have been a thousand or more people traveling with them. They would have had security. They would have had diplomats traveling with them. These were very powerful individuals. So that's who the Magi were. And three of them came to Jerusalem. No, we don't know that there were three. Oh. That also is just tradition. Some say there were three. Some say there were seven. Some say there were 12. Some say there were 15. We really don't know how many there were. But it was a sizable number of Magi. And what really upset Herod was that the Magi earlier on 
had tried to depose Herod. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. They had tried earlier, years before, to depose Herod. There had been a major assault by the Magi. And so that's another reason why when they came, Herod was upset and all of Jerusalem with him. They had had an experience with these Magi before. Now these Magi that have the power to install or depose a king are showing up saying, where is the new king? And for these kingmakers to show up, well, you can just imagine that would have really caused Herod to have a bad day. These were powerful, powerful individuals. Okay. I, I, but I also think it's important to <coughs> understand why these magi were so important. It's also understand it's also important to understand the amount of illiteracy that there was in the world at that time. These were people that had knowledge passed down to them, secret knowledge and secret books passed down to them for generations. You couldn't just Google something back then. We're, we're so used to being able to Google something or think that knowledge or the ability to read is commonplace today. But back then, these were the people that had secret knowledge. They were the people that had special access to books and scrolls that no one else had access to. So they would have been very special people. And centuries earlier, there was a very famous chief of all the Magi whose name was? Daniel. Daniel. And Daniel had prophesied the birth of Jesus, and all of the Magi had held on to Daniel's words for all of those years, and they knew that one day a star would appear, and when the star appeared, it would be the announcement that the greatest leader ever born had been born. So when that star appeared, it quickened in their hearts the words of Daniel. Okay, Joe, let's go to the next question. Oh, that is so wonderful. How many babies did Herod kill in Bethlehem? All right, let's look at it. Let's go to Matthew chapter 2. Verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and all the coasts thereof, it really means in the neighboring areas, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men or of the Magi. All right, well, if you look at the paintings that were painted especially in the Middle Ages, it looks like thousands of babies. Thousands. There's a problem. There weren't thousands of people. In Bethlehem. Yes. Bethlehem was a tiny dot on the map. How many people even lived in Bethlehem? Not very many. Some speculate that Bethlehem may have had a population of 300. Okay, so if there were 300 people, there may have been 30 babies. And it would have to be babies from two and under. And so... And it has to be a little boy. And it has to be a little boy. <coughs> so the numbers are getting smaller and smaller and smaller. So it's amazing. It's amazing how much art has affected what we believe. What people believe about the birth of Jesus, that the wise men and the shepherds all showed up on the same night. That's not what happened. That's just what we see on greeting cards. Or because of paintings... Artists who wanted to really put every, all the drama they could into it, painted all these babies being killed. You know, it's a tragedy for one baby to be killed. It really is a tragedy. But if you want to get a real number, it's believed that the numbers may have been between 7 and 30. 7 and 30. That makes a lot more sense. But in a town of 300 or less... It would have been tragic. It would have been tragic what took place. But Jesus was not there. Jesus was already in Nazareth. Okay, next question. 
How many fish were in Peter's boat? Okay, let's look at it. You got your Bibles? I have my Bible. Luke chapter 5. And in Luke chapter 5, we have the miracle of when Jesus told Luke to throw his net on the other side. Let's look at it. Luke chapter 5, verse 4. And when he had left speaking off, he said unto Simon, Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a draught. <clears throat> Isn't that amazing, the word draught? It really means for a haul. For a haul. Well, how big was the haul of fish? Well, look at verse 6. And when they had this done, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes and their net break. And they beckoned unto their partners, which were in the other ship, which means it's not one ship we're dealing with, not one boat, it's two, that they should come and help them and they came and filled, that word filled is very important, filled both the ships, so they began to sink. Well, this is where a little research can answer the question. Because at that particular time, there was a monopoly of all the boats on the Sea of Galilee. There basically was one shipmaker, one boatmaker, and one fit everybody. Everybody had the same size ship. All the fishermen had exactly the same size boat. And because of excavations where they've actually excavated these ships, there's one that you can see right now at the Sea of Galilee, which they call the Jesus boat. You can go look at it. It's quite large. It's quite large, but because of the size of it and because one size fits all, it's what everybody had, we know how big were these boats. These ships were sufficient if you measure the length, the width, and the depth, to hold, if you filled them comfortably, six tons of fish. That's a lot of fish for a small, uh, uh, I would like to call it a pond, Sea of Galilee. Six tons. That's a lot of fish for the Sea but of Galilee. But these were not filled comfortably. These were filled to overflowing, and it was two ships. So this is probably close to 12 tons of fish. Now, I just love it when you study the Bible. The Bible's so amazing. It is just oh, filled with so many treasures. And when you really dig deep and find out the miraculous events that took place here, it is just a mind-boggler. This wasn't just a few extra fish that day. It was tons. When Jesus moves in our life, he always moves abundantly. And that is the reason why Peter got saved. Peter was stunned. Peter was a businessman. And verse 8 says, When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' feet. If this was just a few fish, he wouldn't have had that reaction. This was tons and tons, maybe 12 tons of fish. He fell at Jesus' feet. The word fell means collapsed. He it just The power just went out of him. And he said, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Verse 9, for he was astonished. And all that were with him at the draught of the fishes which they had taken. And when it says astonished, the Greek word here means to be bewildered. Sometimes it depicts people that had their brains knocked out. They've lost their senses. They've lost their wits. He is totally speechless at what he is seen take place. Does that kind of open that story to you in a new way? Yes. Tons. 
He had never seen that many fish in his life. Probably not. Not at one time. And prior to what Jesus told him to do, they had caught nothing. And suddenly Jesus gives a word, and they catch more than they've caught in their whole life. I think it's just amazing. Which means when Jesus comes into your life, it's good for your business. You know, Peter that day left the ministry. He left the business and he went into the ministry. But imagine how much money he was able to collect from that haul of fish. I mean, Jesus blessed him as he entered into the ministry. Okay, let's go to the next question. What illegitimate child is mentioned in the gospel? Anybody know what illegitimate child is mentioned in the gospels? I don't think you know. Let's look at it. Go to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. And the reason I don't think you know is because I didn't know. This was quite a revelation to me. Matthew chapter 8. And in Matthew chapter 8, the Bible tells us in verse 5, And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a certain centurion beseeching him, and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home, sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. Mm -hmm. Guess what? The servant. The word servant is the Greek word pais. This is a bad translation. The word pais is the word for a little boy. A literal translation would be, Lord, my young boy lieth at home, sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. Then why did they translate it servant? Well, because the translators were trying to fix a dilemma in the text. What was the dilemma? Centurions were not allowed to have children. They weren't allowed to be married. They were not allowed to be married. It was a law that you could not have children until after you left military service. It was a way to motivate them to finish their service. Be a good, be a good soldier. One day you can go home. You can get married. We'll give you land. We'll give you money. Finally, you can have a family. And that would encourage people to fight because then they would prolong their family line. This centurion had a child. He was not supposed to have a child. He could not be married, which means this centurion was probably living with a woman that was not his wife. This was an illicit relationship. And as a result of the illicit relationship, they had an illegitimate child. Now, why is that important to know? Because of what Jesus did not do in this text. Jesus never said, you foul sinner. You're living with a woman that you're not married to. No wonder this child is sick. It's an illegitimate child. It's the result of sin. And Jesus could have gone there. That's what religious people would have done. But Jesus did not do that. Condemning people never helps anybody. Jesus responded. Jesus heard that a child was sick, and Jesus moved, <coughs> and he healed that child. Anyway, that was an illegitimate child. Next question. That's a great lesson. Thank you. Well, I think that, that I mean, Jesus sees the need. He, he looked past, uh, you know, they're wrong, they're, they're living together, an illegitimate child, and he looked to the, the child's suffering, and he looked to the parent that was concerned about the child. And it was the faith of that centurion that touched the heart of God and moved him to, it opened the door for him to touch that boy 
and to touch that centurion. It's pretty powerful. Oh, it's so powerful. By the way, Jesus will respond to you. And if you need somebody to pray with you, call us, 1-800-742-5593, or send us an email. We would love to pray with you. Jesus cares about you. Next question. Why did Jesus have fire <clears throat> eyes in the book of Revelation? Well, let's look at it. Let's go to Revelation <clears throat> chapter 1. And in Revelation chapter 1, John is on the Isle of Patmos. Patmos. Anybody know how old John was on the Isle of Patmos? 96. No, but close. 74. No, very far off. 80. Anybody know? 92. 92 years. I was old. really close. 96? Now, we may not be exactly right, but probably about 92 years old. That's interesting because he was also sent to Patmos in about the year 92. And he's on the Isle of Patmos. And I really love this, guys, because John had known Jesus, walked with Jesus, served Jesus. But in his 90s, he had a brand new revelation of Jesus. And it tells me it doesn't matter how old you are, there's always more to see. There's always more to learn. And while he was in that cave on the Isle of Patmos, which is called the Cave of the Revelation, he saw Jesus like he had never seen Jesus in his life. It was a brand new revelation of Jesus. And part of what he saw was something about Jesus' eyes. In fact, let's look at it. Revelation chapter 1. The Bible says in verse 14, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. And you know how the Greek says it? The eyes of him. It's so personal. It's like he was pulled into those eyes. There was a magnetic attraction to those eyes. The eyes of him were as a flame of fire. It does not say his eyes were a flame of fire. It does not say that. Sometimes you see people who try to illustrate this and they paint Jesus with fire in his eyes. does not say he had fire in his eyes. It says his eyes were as a flame of fire. Well, so you have to think about fire and the word flame because the word flame, the Greek word flus, describes the swirling, the flickering, the arching of flames. And I like to look at fire because a fire kind of has an intelligence. Mm -hmm. Fire has a hypnotizing effect, a magnetism. It just pulls you into it. Isn't it fun to watch fire? Mm -hmm. And how fire just kind of <clears throat> pulls you into it. And when the Bible says his eyes were as a flame of fire, it was John's way of saying, wow, his eyes, the eyes of him. When I looked into his eyes, there was such intelligence. There was such a magnetism. It just pulled me into his eyes. His eyes were like a flame of fire that attracts you and captivates you. He had never seen eyes like that ever before. That's why the Bible says his eyes were as a flame of fire. This has been great, mm -hmm. but we're out of time. But we're going to come back tomorrow night. Are you guys going to join us again? Yes. yes. All right, so you join us again tomorrow night, and when we begin home group tomorrow night, the dinosaur bone will be gone, but something new will be here to show you. Let's have fun. We'll see you tomorrow night. Sleep well. Bye-bye. Bye. If you enjoyed that teaching, please like, subscribe, and comment so more people can see it.